Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. For this final episode in the series, I spoke with Dame Claire Gerarda. Claire is a GP working in South London, but also the president of the Royal College of GPs, medical director of practitioner health, and chair of the charity Doctors in Distress. We talk about the impact of the pandemic on the mental health of doctors, particularly GPs, and Claire's fears and hopes for the future of general practice in the UK. I learned a lot from this discussion, including the merits of binging on Come Dine With Me, so I hope you enjoy it. To begin, I asked Claire how the pandemic had been for her. I think it's been pretty grim for everybody. I think it's I think if we all look back, it's been a hard time and everybody's exhausted. Uh, most people I know are ill. I mean, I'm ill. I've just had a, a, a flu. But most people I know are ill. They're either mentally ill, physically ill. So I, I don't think it's, Paul, I think we've got to be honest. It's been awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What impact do you think um, these experiences have had on doctors mental well health. I can tell you the impact because we run a service for doctors and dentists mainly doctors uh, with mental illness from across England now before the pandemic and compared to the pandemic year so for the first 10 years of the service we had the same number of presentations as in the year of the pandemic which I take March 2020 to April 2021 and a slight denominator change, but not that much. So we had 5,000 doctors presenting to us for care in the pandemic year compared to 5,000 in the uh, 10 years before. And the numbers have gone up. In November 2021, which is our last figures, we had nearly 700 doctors, mainly doctors. We now can take other NHS staff presenting. So you don't need much maths to multiply seven by 12 to realise we're going to easily get to about six, 7,000, if not more, by the end of a 12-month period. So and most of the doctors are presenting with anxiety, which is actually what we're seeing in our patients. And I think it ranges from existential anxiety about the, almost the, 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 the moral injury type where people feel responsible for not being able to save lives. And I know my profession feels that general practice right through to the anxiety, through to losses, loss of sense of certainty, loss of, of, of family, friends. So anxiety is the overwhelming emotion we've seen amongst doctors. And what about in terms of GPs in particular? Oh, yes. I mean, GPs are, represent about 60% of our referrals, and yet they only represent about 30% of the workforce. So, But, of course, we can see why. I mean, at the time we're doing this podcast, GPs are having projected into them as a profession all the anger and loss and fear and loss of certainty from everywhere, from patients, the public, politicians, but also from acute hospitals, from trusts, thinking that we can do it all. And 
And so we're having to contain this. And we can't because we can't create miracles. So this is what I mean about moral injury. The, the GP is desperate to, to make things better but can't. And what happens is you end up in a in a form of, of depression because collective depression, and I think my profession is collectively depressed actually, and you have low self-esteem, you, you feel worthless and hopeless as a profession, and then, of course, individuals feel the same in, in various degrees. So for my profession, I think we've had the worst of it. We've had the, the heroes and heroines in ITU, you know, clapping for, for staff because they, are, I mean, of course they did a good job, but, you know, there they were with a visible manifestation of, of heroism and us not. And I put this mainly to the language. We have a language of war. Uh, and when you've got a language of war, it's very difficult to see what's being done by essentially the home front, which is the GP. And you have the language, you even have uniforms, and which is, of course, PPE and all the, all the uniforms that are worn in hospitals. So my profession has really struggled because what do GPs want to do? They want to make things better and they can't. And I know from from, from the GPs that I've worked with over these um you know, the last year or so, that there's also a sense of isolation. Well, I mean, again, uh, uh, whether we're seeing face-to-face or, or remote, we're working in boxes. And the, the, the thing about being a GP is it's a relational activity that's done between people, between doctor and patient, between doctor and nurse, between doctor and doctor, and we've turned it into an isolated activity. And so many have felt isolated. Many have felt those lovely moments you get in a consultation. Even now, you know, I would be doing every consultation now with how are you doing? Oh, I'm going away. You'd have that tiny bit of small talk at the end of the consultation, which doesn't happen. And so it's become a sort of utilitarian activity, which is not what we went into medicine for, and more so in general practice, because we have rightly moved most of our consultations digitally rightly you can't catch covid from a computer and the idea whilst hospitals are shut for face-to-face predominantly that gps should be somehow different is a nonsense and i guess there's a couple of things kind of picking up there which echoes you know what i've seen in my work there's something about um the isolation and, and for for those working in hospitals i think what i've heard is what has kind of got them through and helped them to face what they've had to face is a sense of of the team and the camaraderie and the support that they've been able to access in that sense. And that that hasn't been available for GPs, that there's kind of no way to hand over things, you know, that the, the workload has to be done by you and that there's no team to pass that on to. I think the public don't realise... We've got about 50,000 GPs. We're about 20,000 short, so we're, we're almost half as many short. Hospitals, there are about 150,000. We have no training grade doctors. I mean, we, we have about 4,000, 3,000, but most of those are tucked up in hospitals, and also we treat them like trainees. We treat them like trainees. They, they don't, they're, they're not a, they're basically supernumerary till the very, very end. And we, uh, we have to do everything, and I know this isn't about this, but 
I think the days of the omnicompetent GP, the omnicompetent doctor who can do all, do all, to great degree of complexity on their own is uh, is gone. And, and I think until the system realises that it has to change, not GPs. In fact, I take my hand off to GPs. They have flexed and worked and learned and adapted to to meet all the requirements that they've had to over the last two decades. And in so doing, we it's become the norm that we do more, do more to a greater degree of complexity. And I think we've now got to say no, that we can't do it. And we can't do it. It's not about saying no, we literally can't do it. That you know. So I think that's what's causing my profession to be depressed. It It's caught in this idolised past and an uncertain future. And... It, it, and through no fault of its own, it can't deliver because there aren't enough of us to deliver. And so we talk about the feminization of the workforce. Well, there's a feminization of the entire workforce across hospital and secondary, though, of course, primary care. But, of course, in hospitals, it's sort of covered up because it's it's only in certain specialties. And also they have the junior workforce and they have what's called staff and associate grades. So it's it's not as apparent, but they too have feminized workforce in most of the specialties and you just got to get used to it women have wombs and wombs contain babies and women tend to look after their, their elders and women tend to do the home care we know that from all research even during covid so i think we've as the young people will say you know get over it that's what happens either you ban women from becoming doctors which would be ridiculous or you get over it and realize for every single male doctor uh, retiring today, we need to replace them by 2.2 doctors, male and female, because of course the workload has expanded. But that, I think, is why this this soup this why the the rate of 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 increase has increased in terms of referrals to my service because we're not being counted as one of everybody. We're being we've been singled out to blame. So those pressures around the increasing workload, the complexity of the workload, the sense of isolation, and as you said, that kind of very public facing, taking the brunt of a lot of projected anger. And it's also, you know, our own making. We 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 have promised so much over the years. We have been there. You know, I talk about there are three pillars in society, or at least there were, your local primary school teacher, your local faith leader, and your local GP. And you tended to engage with each one of those in different ways. And it's difficult now to engage with your local GP because we're not the same as we were 15 years ago. We have moved on. We are much more utilitarian. We are much more transactional. And I think we should have spotted this because what most people want is a GP who's there for them. So it's a mix. But I think to blame us for a systemic problem is is unfair and it's actually creating more despair and more departures and fewer people coming into the profession so it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and what do you think needs to change well it certainly can't just be little changes we now i know what needs to change we need to rebalance the funding between primary and secondary care at the moment primary care gets eight percent secondary care gets 92 percent we need to reform hospital and acute care not primary care we need to reform what goes on in hospitals hospitals have to care for patients outside the hospital the idea you discharge a very sick patient to my care is ridiculous absolutely ridiculous they need to be creating hospital at home they need to be creating transitional teams uh for at least a fortnight after discharge, they need to be creating 
enhanced services for patients with complex comorbidity. And we need to be training GPs for longer and also getting other doctors trained in general practice. So, And we need to stop, as I said, being the omnicompetent uh, doctor in the community. And we need to stop doing hospital work. It's not my job to, to do bits that the hospital can't or won't do. So... So I know what needs to be done. It's whether there's a political force to change it, but there has to be, because if there doesn't, then I think we're on a trajectory of losing general practice, which would be very sad, considering it is the jewel in the crown that's the NHS. It is what other countries emulate. And we were the first to get there 70 years ago. Do you feel hopeful? I'm a hopeful person. I am a hopeful person. Uh, And I think... I, I, I think every 20 or so years there is a, a crisis in general practice and we emerge from it stronger and I'm hoping this will happen now. Just stepping back from the pandemic a bit and, and maybe thinking more broadly about doctors' mental health, um, could you tell me a bit about how your passion for doctors' mental health developed? Yeah, thank you, Paul. It didn't really develop. I never had a passion for doctors' mental health, actually. What I had a passion for or what I was interested in I've always cared for people on the margins. So when I first qualified, I looked after intravenous drug users and then the homeless and then drug-using pregnant women and refugees and asylum seekers, always interested in those on the margins. And I also did a lot of medical legal work, not a lot, but I did work for the doctors who were up in front of the GMC, both for the GMC and for for the the medical defence organisations. But what struck me about a lot of the cases was they got into trouble because in those days it was around drug misuse. Either they were over-prescribing or they were drug users themselves. And when the... So I had these interests. I wasn't really interested in mentally ill doctors, but I was interested in the medico-legal side of of doctors. And so when the, the advert came to run this brand new service and it was it was actually commissioned or advertised in a very different way so it was actually modeled the nhs so you had a a first contact primary care service and then you referred immediately to the secondary care in other words you did exactly what happens in general practice and i thought that's nonsense what we need to do is to form an integrated service i.e bring the specialist into the service you work together, single budget, no referrals at all. And if you need a referral, so outside, then it's handpicked. So I wrote the bid just like that and and put in all my experience about managing drug users and the homeless and mentally ill and how similar doctors were. And I did see a few doctors because I, my practice is near St. Thomas's, so there's a few doctors registered with us. And I got the, the contract. I was very, very surprised because I was competing against every other person bidding I think was from a specialist service but I put in this as a as an integrated first contact service and all the bits and I also said it's much better for doctors to come to a service that looks like a GP practice that smells like a GP practice and rather than going to a big institution for their care and I got it and the rest is history so but the funny thing is I was convinced that I didn't get it at interview absolutely convinced I came back surgery to my afternoon surgery and I deleted everything to do with the the bid deleted it and uh, off the computers everywhere and I googled how to deal with with loss or how to deal with failure and I found some really good sites 
from the Buddhists, actually. So by the next morning, I was really okay. I thought, well, that's okay. I'll be able to manage patients better because I won't be busy. So, but then that afternoon, they rang me to say I'd got the contract, which I was delighted. And yeah, I've been running it. I finish in March next year, March 2022. And that will be nearly 15 years. So having not necessarily gone into that with a particular passion or interest around doctors' mental health, um, you've obviously, you know, dedicated a lot of time and work to supporting that cause. Oh, because they're interesting people. I talk about the doctor's identity. And in fact, uh, I was listening to Gary Lineker talk the other day and about how footballers, how footballers even despite their income, despite their money, when they no longer are playing football, how difficult they find it. And many of them, or some of them, go into gambling, into addiction, have failed marriages, and they, they've lost their way. They cannot find another way. They can't find. And it's the same for doctors. That If you think about it, as a footballer, you've probably been identified from about the age of six that you're a good sportsman and you're pushed into football. You know, it's probably about six and you have no other identity other than a footballer. Everything about you is a foot. The same as a doctor, this immense sense of identity, and exactly the same. So it's, it's, it's not just a personal identity, it's a group identity. So you're personally attached to medicine, you're personally attached to football, but also as a group. Our group identity is that of doctors, and their group identity is that of football. And... When you have this powerful identity, I wanted to understand. So this is how I understood why doctors who have so many positive predictive factors have such high rates of mental illness. It's because this massive identity both protects them, but also puts them at risk of mental illness. And that's, the way it protects them is as you create that identity, you learn the rules of engagement, which is you, know, you, you, you don't take time off sick, you, you support your peers, uh, you wait, do long hours. And if again, if you think about with football, their group identity, which they learn, is you, you work despite injury, You all the things that we know footballers do. So, so it protects you, but at the same time, it inhibits doctors from seeking health help because part of that identity is that you don't become sick and you, you expunge the doctor who's sick. Now, less so today, but, and I think COVID has changed it, but certainly before that doctors would boast how they'd cycle into work with a broken leg. I cycled, I've got knocked over off my bike on the way to evening surgery. So I wheeled my bike back to the surgery I'd just left, took a taxi to the surgery I was going to, did the entire clinic, got a taxi home and crawled up the path which, with a broken foot, a very badly broken foot. And I thought to myself, not then, but years later why on earth didn't i just ring up and say i've been knocked off my bike i can't work and again it's because of the sense of identity and it might not be that they would have said oh you're a stupid idiot or whatever but it's so internalized that you would have felt a stupid idiot and so this is what i write about this is what i want to understand the same with addiction why do doctors become addicts now we know why they become addicts because they have close contact to, to drugs but they also become addicts because it gives them uh, a sense of power to be able to take the drugs and, and because it, it, there's a sense of of becoming a different sort of person when you take drugs. So I, 
I really became interested in, in, in doctors and, and at the same time I was training to be a group analyst and so I was learning the, the psychoanalytical uh, underpinning and it all fitted with doctors. And I'm interested, you said that, you know, you're wondering whether COVID has changed something of that perspective around, uh, I guess, doctors' invincibility to illness. Well, I think it's fundamentally changed. I, I think doctors uh, are no longer willing to sacrifice their lives to the service of humanity. And I think I think we've seen that because doctors have died. And when you see doctors dying in not the same proportions, but certainly in high proportions, when you see, and the fact that doctors are becoming sick, the fact that doctors are becoming depressed, you it actually breaks that bubble a little bit that actually we are like everybody else. Now that's very sad because if you break that fantastic collusion which Thomas Main talked about when he was talking about uh, therapeutic communities, that there has to be a fantastic collusion between the doctor on the pedestal as invincible and the patient who needs help and needs to, somebody to hold their anxiety against death. And we've broken that and I think that's again feeding into this anti-GP business because who's holding that now for people? Who's holding the hope? The number of times I'm asked by friends, uh, do you think we'll have another lockdown? Now, the only reason they ask me is because they think because of my role as president, I must have inside information and I can give them hope. So I say, no, I don't think we'll have another lockdown, but I don't know any more than, than they know. But what they want, and you must see this, Paula, in your work, what they want is for you to give them hope to contain their anxiety. Now, doctors can't do that anymore. We've been exposed to the same illness as, as everybody else. And it's the first time in history, well, really since the, the Spanish flu, that we have all been exposed to the same illness and the same treatment all across the world, exactly the same, at the same time. So I think that fantastic collusion has burst. I think doctors themselves... All doctors are no longer willing to sacrifice themselves, their families. Remember, medicine is predominantly female. A million out of 1.2 million staff in the NHS are women, and women don't want to be taking COVID home to their families, so they feel guilty. So I think it has, and I think we need to discuss it much more in the wider arena about what does this mean and is it going to go back to normal? Because if it isn't, then I think we need to have a new sort of health system. I've been surprised, um, you know, when I first started this work last year, I was expecting, particularly with, I've done a lot of work with the Intensive Care Society supporting some of their members, and I was expecting there to be a lot of anxiety about people's um, own safety in their work, you know, and having to go into into work and put themselves at, at risk, because that was the things that was, you know, foremost on my mind. Um but but what I was hearing was much more anxiety about not being able to deliver good care to patients and, um, you know, denying patients access to their families at end of life and those kind of really painful stuff. And and I guess I, I wondered whether there's something about um, a really useful defence against the existential anxiety of, of, of facing your own mortality in your work and, and not feeling... Uh, that you have any choice around that, that almost to acknowledge the risk to yourself 
would make it very hard to continue to carry on. Yes, but I think you said last year, I think things have changed since last year. I think things have fundamentally changed since last year. I mean, what you described as moral injury, and that was at the forefront of, of people, but I think things have changed. I think the profession is exhausted. Everybody's exhausted. Teachers are exhausted. Social workers, bus drivers, taxi drivers, everybody's exhausted. Uh, we all need three weeks sleep, uh, which you can't have. Uh, and, but it's the doctors that we project into them the magical belief we can keep us better. So that's what I'm saying about the responsibility that we have. And it is predominantly the GP because it boils down to the GP because it's the GP that most people's relationship with doctors begins and ends. So some really quite fundamental shift in, in our relationship to healthcare and and doctors' own relationships to their I, I think so, Paula, but what I'm saying is I think we need a discussion about it and, and I think we need to be yeah. open and honest and say, is this something that's going to last or is it going to go back to normal? Uh, what does it mean? Is it a good thing? We've always wanted doctors to be like everybody else. I've actually always argued that they shouldn't be like everyone else, uh, that actually if we want doctors to do the unpalatable things that we request of them, that... They have to be shored up with psychological defences, therefore they have to be different. But it's having a debate. I mean, maybe we'll be better know this time next year. And again, just thinking more broadly about some of the things that get in the way of doctors seeking help when they are struggling and how you address that in, in practitioner health. Well, I think we've spent 15 years trying to address it. I think we have got quite far in that now it's about fear it's shame uh mainly it's fear and shame shame of admitting that you're vulnerable and need help and and that it will have consequences on your job but i think we've moved on that but i still think there are issues and i think the issues are around doctors now about having the time to care for themselves uh the internal resources the exhaustion if you're really tired really depressed it's difficult it's like the analogy of the drowning man you know if you if your head is literally your nose is literally just above the water you don't have any energy but just to keep your nose above the water so you and i think that's what we're seeing with with certainly with gps if they're so demoralized and despondent they haven't said we get most of them coming but i think there's vast numbers out there yeah, I wanted to ask you whether, you know, part of, of the, your role is, is myth-busting, that, that sometimes people um, have fears that are unfounded, or whether there are aspects of the system that, that do punish people who yeah, are struggling. Yeah, I think they're not, um, I think they are not unfounded. I think if you admit in the wrong place that you've got a mental illness, I still think you can end up running into serious issues. So, I mean, some things, for example... At its worst, let's say it's worse. If you admit, if you're a gay man and you're using chemsex drugs and you admit it at your HIV clinic, then the chances are you're going to get referred to the regulator for using illegal drugs, which is not very good for, for the doctor because it will stop them going to get care, etc., etc. But right through, if you admit that you're depressed or drinking too much or having suicidal thoughts at work, some people might overreact and report it up the line and, and nobody takes any responsibility. So I think I think there are 
there are still problems about where you present. At our service, there is no problem. You can have a confidential service. We talk to you clearly. If there are issues that need to be disclosed, we talk to you, we help you do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what message might you want to give to a struggling doctor right now? Uh, I'd say, first of all, seek help from your friends. Uh, Try and find those support systems closest to you to offer you support. Remember, you're not alone. It's It's a difficult time for everybody and you're not alone. And if you really are struggling and and can't get any respite, then please ring up Practitioner Health, www.practitionerhealth.nhs.uk, and we're there to provide you with treatment. My my charity, Doctors in Distress, actually is for all healthcare staff, and we're there to try and support healthcare staff who are around the emotional aspects of their job by providing safe spaces, safe, reflective, peer-led but facilitated spaces. And it's a lovely place. And we've had doctors and nurses with long COVID, we've had doctors who are stranded in this country, we've had black doctors who had black doctors groups. So please don't struggle in silence. It's the worst thing I ever hear is of a doctor who has taken their own life. And I think to myself, if only they had come to my service. Not that I, you know, I'm not, Jesus, I might not be able to do things, but... Uh, uh, but please, you know, seek help. And I'm just wondering for you, Claire, you obviously have a very full and varied working yeah. life. Um, I'm just wondering what aspects of that um, are more likely to hurt for you. Hurt for me. Hurt. Yeah. Uh, in, in what respect? I guess what aspects of your work um, are likely to kind of stay with you in a troubling way well, the thing that stays with me most 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 is my profession gps i i feel desperately sorry that my profession is being abused in such a way and that we've got it wrong that something is going so horribly wrong and that means patients are suffering my patient my, my, my patients are suffering this profession's struggling and I don't know how to fix it. Now, if I was in charge, really in charge, if I was the prime minister, I think I would be able to fix it. But I think you'd need a really, it's a bit like forming a, a, a sort of COVID advisory group. It's like forming, what's the group that's been running the COVID? You know, it's, it's and, but then you can do it. You know, if at a moment's notice, the prime minister can make us all wear masks, then at a moment's notice, he can force 60% of of newly qualified doctors to train as GPs, which is what we need. You know, if 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 he can make us all show our passport, our, our COVID passport at a moment's notice, then he can also at a moment's notice require that hospitals looked after their patients for two weeks or a month after discharge. But it, it requires something akin to that to 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 make this all better. And that's what keeps me awake at night. It's what worries me consistently and uh, you know so what keeps you going what keeps me going is the love of my profession which is very so the the other is that I adore being a GP I find it I think I've been very lucky because what I've done which is what I plead to my profession is find a place of belonging so I found my partnership I wanted it it was in a very poor area it was my own GP practice actually and 
I didn't I got less money going to it than I had as a trainee so it wasn't money uh it, it contained me and I've been there for 32 years and it's allowed me to develop and grow and to do all the things I need to do and I wish that my profession finds the same because actually I think if you can find a space that can contain you then you will and it's one of the three the ABC well it's belonging is one of them so uh, it's a space that you belong to so I love being a GP I mean look at me at 62 I'm not doing full-time general practice but I'm certainly full-time working uh, if not more I'm hoping to drop down a day a week next year that'll be the first time ever ever that I've dropped down a day a week ever uh, so it'll be interesting and I'm going to put an out of office on my diary and I will do apps I've been noticing people who have out of offices on their diary saying I don't work so I think okay that's what I'm going to do and I'm not going to work on a Monday I'm going to take that day off and go swimming I was going to ask you for like what are the things that that kind of support you in terms of your I used to run Paul and then I damaged my knees I can't run so I recently took up swimming which I used to hate I didn't like swimming pools but I decided I have to go swimming so I found a really nice swimming pool locally and uh, I love it so when I've got this Monday off these Mondays next year after April I'll go once a week maybe even twice a week and then I'll come home and I'll you know, meet friends for coffee. I'll do all those things people have talked about and I've never been able to do. I will have a day off a week. I can't wait. Can you imagine? I've worked since I was 23. So it'll be 40 years and I finally, 39 years, finally get a day off a week. And I read, um, I think, Claire, you tweeted a while ago about um, watching Married at First Sight. And I wondered if that kind of those kind of pursuits are, are part of, you know, getting you through some of. Oh God, yes. I watched. Well, I watched Come Dine with Me back to back. Oh gosh, yes. I watched uh, Australia Married at First Sight, and I was intrigued by it. And I watched it. I must have watched it one Saturday, back to back episodes, and then I looked up how many of them remain married and. Uh, it's a disaster, by the way, the numbers that remain married. It's really a disaster. It's really, really, I think one in a hundred, you know, however many they get going through. But what intrigues me about Married at First Sight, the same as Come Dine With Me, in a way, is these are group activities. And if you're interested in groups of people, and you start to see how behaviours happen in groups. And that's why I like Come Dine With Me, because they put four different people together, really different people, you know. And then you see the tensions that go on. And you also see, and if you watch it very carefully, come dine with me, there's always one that ends up as a scapegoat. There's always one that ends up as a leader. Uh, there's one that ends up as a sort of chairman. You know, the, and, and then the group, and we don't see it all. We only see the bad bits. But it is fascinating. And the same as Married at First Sight. You know, you see these. I mean, what amazes me is how one ever meets one's spouse. <laughs> you know, with that. Yes. <laughs> I met my husband and we met and over the sectioning, Mental Health Act sectioning on the floor of the Maudsley Hospital. And within a month we were engaged. And I think to myself, can you imagine if we'd gone through all these psychological bits and pieces? We'd never have married. We're complete opposites. I like sport. He doesn't. He likes to watch it. You know, it's, it's, it's bizarre. But, no, I love that. I love it. I'm watching at the moment back-to-back uh, MasterChef. But that's different. That's different. 
but I think there's something about um, that sort of the kind of emotional um, compellingness of these shows that when you have got a very intense working life in a funny way, give you some respite, you know, give you a break. They need to be compelling enough to occupy your your mind and brain, um, but distant enough so that they're not continuing to traumatise you. I think it's because they're mindless, actually. Mm. Come dine with me when you watch enough of them, and believe me, I've watched enough of them. They're all <laughs> the same. There's the same formula. Uh, you can also predict who's going to win. Uh, so it's never the first person because they always, bit, you know, you you can. It it's exactly the same formula. So it's very 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 safe to watch. Yes, and you're right. There's all the tensions and everything that go on in between, but the formula is the same and it's so consistent that you can watch it. You don't even have to watch it. And it's not about the food. And if you watch Come Dine with Me, the food is irrelevant. So it's it's not the person with the with the best food that wins, nor the person with the best the best uh, entertainment. It's it's always something very different. And and the, the I mean I have I have to say I've stopped watching uh, Married at First Sight because it is such rubbish that uh, I, even I couldn't bring myself to watch more than half a day's of it. But Come Dine with Me isn't. Come Dine with Me is a very interesting program. My favourite um, show is Gogglebox. Oh right, I've never <laughs> watching what. It's it's really fascinating. I think it, for for lots of those reasons, you know, you're it, and it's so interesting because you're watching other people watching TV, um, and just that sense of of their interactions and, and how, um, yeah, I find it really lovely. <laughs> Claire, is there anything else that that you wanted to say that we haven't covered? That yeah, I want to. Say, I hope I haven't sounded hopeless. I think there is hope. I think there's always hope. And if I look back at my profession, every twenty so years since 1946, we've predicted the end of general practice, and it's still there, and it's still thriving in many ways. And so I just don't want us to think that I'm hopeless. I am very hopeful. I also think sometimes it comes with age. So what people listening to me have to factor in is that I am getting to the end of my career. And when you're getting to the end of everything, of anything, you begin to look back with sorrow because not just do you wish it was different, but you look back and you idolise the past. So I think it's you've got to be very wary if you're listening to this for listening to me and seeking any, any nuggets of wisdom because it is tinged with this, this sense of, of in my day and, I, I hope I don't do that, but I know, of course, I do do that. And the second thing I'd like to say is, yeah, my charity and, uh, you know, Doctors in Distress. I've recently written a book called Beneath the White Coat, Doctors, Their Minds and Mental Health, and all the proceeds are going to the charity. And the Doctors in Distress is not just about doctors, and Beneath the White Coat is not just about doctors. And if you want to learn more about doctors' mental illness or why people get over-identified or about bipolar disorder and doctors or addiction or how to stay out of trouble – or if you're in trouble, how to not dig more holes, then please buy the book because the more books you buy, the more proceeds go to the charity and the more doctors' lives we can stop either killing themselves or becoming mentally ill. Thank you, Claire. Well, thank you so much, Paula. This is the last episode in Series 1 of When Work Hurts. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast. Please do share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. We'll be back in a few weeks with series two, which continues to explore how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. 
through compassion, connection and creativity. So until next time, take good care.